Good morning. Rhiannon, you'll have to listen. Is Rhiannon in here? No, she's Okay. I want you to tell me if I'm squeaky. You, ad- you adjusted Jackie last week, and I thought that was good. It's okay? All right. All right. All right. I get a fork because you made me run fast. Oh, my goodness. I love our informal meeting. We're learning the Word of God. Uh, we're human. We're real. And it's fun when we talk to each other and there's joking and hilarity. And that's the way it should be. Well, today we're in Romans 1, Romans 2, 1 to 29. Scared you, didn't I? <laughs> and we're going to be beginning, beginning study four titled God's Standards. <coughs> and uh, there are th- three sections. I put them on the board for you. Uh, verses 1 to 5, 6 to 16, and 17 to 29. But before we begin to pray, before we begin to read, let's pray. Father, I just ask you to take the nervousness and the concern I have right now. I just feel the heaviness of this passage. It's a deep passage, and I just pray you'll give me clarity and help me as I bring what I've been doing all week, learning of you. Thank you, dear Lord, for all you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to get you to do something different this morning. I'm going to ask you to read in unison with me. I've got the ESV. I know many of you have. And let's just start at chapter 2, and we'll read right through to the end. And for those of you who want to read with me, that would be great. So let's start. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Thank you for reading with me. Well, I wonder sometimes if you've ever had this experience where you have a, an issue with somebody, and so you Maybe it's your spouse, and you want to get a certain point across, so you, you practice what you're going to say, and you, you get all your points ready, and you, you're going to deliver this diatribe, and you're going to tell the person why you want to express yourself this way and what it, what it means. And then you go to them, and you're all ready, and, and you say to yourself, I'll say this, and when they say that, I'll say this. And you get there, and you present your point, and they agree completely with you. And just take the wind right out of your sails. Well, today what Paul is doing almost sounds like it, but it's not. It's a dialogue that he's having. Uh, in the past weeks, we talked about who the letter was written to originally. But now let's look at what Paul is addressing. He's addressing excuses. And in the very first sentence of chapter 2, he says, Therefore... You have no excuse, O oh man. So when you look at that word, therefore, what is it there for? He's just finished describing in chapter 1, 18 to 32, that the whole world is under the judgment of God and that all men are under the power of sin. And now he begins to describe God's righteous judgment. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, when you judge another. If you are a person, you're under the power of sin. No special cases no exceptions. And he's emphasizing in verses 1 to 11, what do you do or practice? Depending on your translation, you, some of you will have practice, others will have do. Um, the ESV says practice. 
So when you look at verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice or do such things. Verse 3 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice or do such things? Can I turn this off? I think I just died. It's the devil. But I am prepared. <sighs> I often thought of that happening, you know, the power goes out. Oh, not that I'm All right. Okay, here we go. So verse 3, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Again and again, he's asking, what do you do, not what do you say? He's not saying that those things found in the last chapter uh, are the only things that could be said about the ancient world, because we know that there were Greek philosophers, there were beautiful things done. But the people that he's dialoguing with in this letter probably lived good lives. They would agree with some of the things, and of course the danger would be that in judging these things as wrong, it would be a means of justifying themselves, being self-righteous. Well, last week as we finished chapter one, we saw the summary of human perversity that Paul described. And he's saying, because of man's wickedness and his turning away from the truth, that God has handed him over to an unfit mind. And we read that God gave them up to idolatry, to warp human relationships, and no matter however moral they may seem, no matter how upright they appear, no one will be able to solve these problems. And he's not saying everybody behaves like that, for instance, with regard to homosexuality or the other things we mentioned. No, he's saying that you cannot bring man back into a relationship with God and you cannot solve all the human relationship problems that still remain. They're common to all mankind. Uh, whatever era the world has been in, and you older ladies, you've seen what we've gone through with the different wars. But things are not getting better. Things that Paul mentioned still remain. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What a summary. And so now it's not God's truth that they know, but his decree, which is that all men who do these things deserve death. And as we begin chapter 2, we see Paul's engaged in what the ancient world called, or practiced, it was called a diatribe, which is a speech, a lengthy piece of writing, criticizing something. And in this case, those who would receive the letter, who needed to examine themselves as far as self-righteousness or moralizing that was being practiced. And he's now turning from the world of shameless immorality, which we saw in the last chapter, um, to the world of the self-righteous moralist. Listen to the tone. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man. Well, who is this imaginary person? Most likely, Paul is going over the many times he's been confronted with just such excuses. He is readdressing the actual arguments that both the Gentiles and the Jews um, have thrown at him. In fact, we could even go so far as to say, these might have been some of the excuses he himself had used when he was a Pharisee and, and before meeting Christ. Well, this type of teaching in the ancient world took the form of the teacher asking a question and then giving the answer. It was a diatribe or a dialogue. And this is how the letter is written. Oh, criticizing, moralizing human being. 
He has moved from addressing the type of people who did things they knew were wrong in the last chapter. They even approved of those who did them, but now he's turning to this group who do what they know to be wrong and condemn others who do the same thing. So in fact, they're being hypocritical. The second group set themselves up as judges, only to find they're being judged by the very same thing. Paul is saying there's no room for self-righteousness or smugness about your morals because God has consigned all men to sin. And verses 1 to 4, he deals with the issues or the tendency for us to be critical of everybody but ourselves. You know, we can get all worked up, can't we, about something we see someone do and say, well, they call themselves a Christian, and yet they're doing this. Well, <laughs> that's by, by nature of that statement, that's a judgmental statement because we're judging whether they're Christians. And so we really need to be careful. Paul is describing the way people justify themselves, but he says, how can we play God and pass judgment on others for doing what we do? How do we think we'll escape God's judgment? Do you think you'll escape, he says. That's pretty strong. But he's continuing on in verse four, and now he will address those people who see the moat in other people's eyes, but not the, the beam or the plank in their own. And they presume on God's grace. Well, let's just stop right here and turn to page 45 in the study. And it's question three. Why has God withheld the just consequences of any sins you and I might have committed recently. So anybody, page, question three, actually on page 45. Yeah, that's what I said. It says, has God withheld just consequences of any sins you've committed recently? This is not confession time, but the answer to the last part. If so, why has he done this? Mm-hmm. Something else? Besides? He tolerated patience with us. Yeah, yeah. With like what? Lead us to repentance. Right. With, with the end in view that we will repent. Um, something happened last two weeks ago, and I was talking to Jackie, and I said, should I tell them this? Because it's going to give you the worst impression of me. I went into Food Basics, and they had milk on. It was a two-quart carton for 99 cents. Now, it wasn't the 50% off because it was close to the date. They had an overstock. And so I took it, and I brought it home, and it was sour. And they charged me 99 cents on my bill, and I took it back the next day and went to the counter and said to the girl, it's sour, I'm going to get another one. And when I went back, all of them were the same date, and I thought, you know, I just think maybe I'll get another brand or another size. And I came back to the girl and I said, here's my bill. Would you credit me for it? I'm going to buy another one. And she credited me $3.99. And I walked out. And I thought, oh my, I'm up $3.99. Well, that makes up for all the times that I've been overcharged. So I went home and I said, George, they gave me back $3.99. He never said anything. And that night, I had no peace, and I just felt bad all night. I had this feeling, a feeling, and I thought, you know what? This was wrong. So I said, George, I was getting into bed, and I said, I'm going back in the morning to Food Basics. I got to tell them that they charged me. They gave me back too much. He said, good for you. <laughs> so I went back in in the morning, and I said to the girl, you need to take $3 from my American Express because I only paid 
99 cents. And she said, oh, I'll have to get the manager. That's a big deal. <laughs> and he came, and I told him, you know, when I came back yesterday what had happened. He says, well, you're up three bucks on us. He said, it was our mistake. Well, you know, I felt so awful. I walked out, and I walked across that parking lot, and I felt such shame. I thought, I don't need three bucks. And I don't need to presume on God and make myself think, oh, well, it's just a little sin. Yeah, it's only three bucks. But I thought, I don't need to steal or take something that's not mine. You know, and okay, I did go back and that, you know. But I thought his spirit was working in me. And I just want to say this, that when you've done something wrong and you're feeling not good about it, you know, deal with it. Don't, don't squelch it. We don't want to have a seared conscience. And I, I just, even as I think back, I think, what was I thinking? I mean, Satan can be so subtle, but it just shows you that, you know, that sin that we've got within us, that, that we think we can do what we like because it pleases us and it solves our little problem, when in reality, you know, we're saying that we're walking with the Lord. Well. It's awesome, though. How the Holy Spirit speaks to us. I know. I'm, I'm impressed with that too because yep. it's happened to me a few times too. And, and so I'm thinking, all right, Lord, just keep doing that. Only do it not just when I get money that I don't need or don't deserve, but do it every other time. If I'm sharp with somebody or I say something, please pull me up short. So the, the answer, of course, is um, that he wants to lead us to repentance. He wants us to repent of anything. Now, in, in other, uh, another uh, question, verse 4, why should you not judge other people's sin? Anybody? Because we're guilty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But part of that very same question that we just answered, they need time for the Holy Spirit to cause them to repent. And haven't you had people say something and then come back later and go, you know, I was out of line, I'm sorry. And that in itself is a form of repentance because they're apologizing for something they know that's not honoring to the Lord. So, so we do, you know, for starters, shouldn't judge others because we'll be judged by the same thing. Do you presume, he says, do you presume in verse 4? And we often do, don't we? I did. His next statement, not knowing that God's kindness and forbearance is meant to what? Well, Sarah said it, to lead you to repentance. We know when we've done something that isn't in line with the word of God, and sometimes our thoughts do run like this. You know, you know me. You've always been there for me, Lord. You're kind and gracious. You won't cast me out. I can always count on you and your grace. And sometimes we even misapply the scripture and say to ourselves, oh, God is so kind and long-suffering. He won't punish anybody. He won't punish me. But when you read this this morning, it's very clear. We, were, you know, we presume on God's kindness, but it's not meant to lead us to living any old way, but to lead us to repentance. And Paul is assuming here that everyone who is reading this is hearing what he's saying, and that means you and I, that we will be penitent, so that like the Romans, we will not take refuge in, in some idea that we're, we're immune or can count on God's favoritism. By not repenting, we show our contempt for God and, and we'll make things worse for ourselves as the following statement makes it very clear. You know, what will happen? And the, the word says on that day, that day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And there's no partiality with God. 
So now question four on page 45. The answer is that we will be judged just the same as, as we judge others, but that also that they'll be given time to repent. Sometimes when somebody said something hurtful, I'll just say, Lord, show them, because there's no point in me going back and saying, you said this, or you have to show them. I can't. And so we have to wait for that repentance in their life. So the basic message in those five verses we've begun with, you who think you're better than others will not escape judgment. So let's continue on to verse 6. He'll render to each one according to his works. That's a quote from Psalm 62, verse 12. The actual words in that psalm say, but you will render to a man according to his work. And then what, follow, what follows is two patterns of life and two final destinations. Now here is where the argument starts. Paul, you say that salvation is by faith alone. Now you're saying it is by good works, but that's not what he's saying. So we're just let's follow through with those, this thinking. Verse 7 says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So our goals and our works, our end, our goals, are they seeking God's glory? Our works, our actions, are they in serving others? Are they God-honoring? Are we seeking our own material welfare or God's kingdom? What does our pattern of life look like? Well then, verse 8, there's another uh, destiny or another pattern of life. Uh, it says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then he emphasizes again God's impartiality in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being that does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So here he has spoken about the human plight. We're all under the wrath of God, and we will be judged. The term according to his works can also be explained in this way, according to how a person lives. And we also need to know that Paul is not saying that some will earn their way to heaven. His point is not that we're saved by our works, but that we'll be judged by our works because they reveal the underlying attitude of our hearts. To quote John Stott, the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works or love in our lives. I'm going to repeat that. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives." End quote. On that great day, all will be exposed, and the righteous judge will know. So for those of you who had time to look up Matthew 7, where Jesus talks about judging, and he describes a tree and its fruit, he finishes with a statement, you will recognize them by their fruit. The note in the ESV was so good, I wrote it down. The mere claim to be a follower of Jesus and the mere possession of the outward trappings of a commitment to followers of Jesus to him do not indicate whether one's relationship with him is real. Christian discipleship 
is genuine when it arises from a heart and a mind transformed by God's grace. And this inner transformation, which Matthew calls repentance, will inevitably bear good fruit. So as Paul contrasts the difference in verse 6 and 7 and 8, he describes what doing good reveals. It reveals a right response to God's revelation of himself, giving him glory and honor and holding on to him as the immortal God instead of worshiping an idol or material things. We saw last week as Jackie taught us how God has revealed himself to people. He has revealed his righteousness. He is holy. He has also revealed his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we saw the repetition of the phrase, God gave them over, or God gave them up, according to the translation you have. People persist in doing evil, and so in verse 7, Paul is really speaking hypothetically, because we have already been told that no one does good. And he's just saying, in other words, just suppose everybody did only good, they'll have eternal life. But he's, he's working toward to explain how to do good and how to have eternal life. But he's just speaking hypothetically here. But to those who do evil or are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, well, that betrays a rebellious heart. It shows a rebellious heart, a rejecting of the truth in favor of a lie. And there will be consequences. And so verse 7 and 8 show that on Judgment Day, people will get exactly what they deserve. God is perfect in all his ways. There will be no miscarriage of justice. God will reward those who have done good and punish those who have done evil. So verse 9 to 11. Let's just go on to that now. 9 to 11. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Interesting. He finishes, he finishes 9 to 11 talking about judgment will be impartial. He talks about two categories of people, those who do good and those who do evil. They'll have two destinies, glory and honor, and peace, or tribulation and distress. And he's going to talk about the law, and he's going to talk about those without. He's got the whole world in view as he categorizes every human being as either Jew or Gentile. No favoritism shown to Jew or Greek. The Jews must have been shocked to hear this. But it's going to take him until chapter 3, verse 20, and, and Sarah will be taking us in through that. Verses 12 to 16, his righteous judgment comes now. The first word in verse 12, for. And that indicates the beginning of an explanation as to why the Jew and Gentile will both be judged. This sentence really is the start of the main point he is going to expand on. Namely, how the Gentiles perish apart from the law, which is verses 14 to 16, and how the Jews are judged by the law, 17 to the very end. So verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law, they'll perish without the law. And so turn to question 5 on page 45, and it says, by what standards does God judge the Jews? Anybody want to offer a response? In verse 11, it says um, there is no respect for persons. 
So how will the Jews be judged? Will they be judged according to the law or without the law? According to the works of the law, right? They had the law, but they did not do them, and they'll be judged for disobedience. Well, what about the Gentiles? They know they don't know God's law; they never had it. How will they be judged, and on what basis? Anybody? That's right, right. Their conscience, the law that's written on their hearts because God has put within each person a sense of who he is and, and what's right and what's wrong. But it's not the hearers, but the doers. And I keep um, hearing Jesus' words echoing in, in uh, Luke 6 and 37. I'm just going to read that to you. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And, and he's more or less saying that if you judge, you know, you will be judged. But he's talking about what we do. Um, I think I picked up the wrong portion because he talks about... Um, Let me, okay, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck. But I think that's not the right one that I meant to do, so I've written it down wrong. But he's talking about, you know, you call me Lord, Lord. That's the portion of scripture I meant to, to pull up. You call me Lord, but you don't do the things that I say. So he made it very clear. It's what we do after we've come to him and we're saying that he's our savior. So verses 12 to 16 in this portion of the scripture shows that it makes no difference whether you have heard the law or not. Um, having a law or not having a law makes no difference. Not the hearers, but the doers. So Paul explains the Gentiles have the requirements of the law written on their hearts. They do know what is right. And his argument here is that by nature, they have moral consciences. They do not sin all the time, but they do sin. They do not obey their conscience any more than the Jews obey the written law. They do sin and equally deserve to face God's wrath. So he puts the Jews and the Gentiles into the same category of sin and death. And he makes his statements um, with the same phrase, all who have sinned without the law. <coughs> And then again, he makes the same statement, all who have sinned under the law. So irrespective of whether they're Jew or Gentile, the phrase, all who have sinned, will be judged. So verse 16 is, is noteworthy here, because up till now, there's no mention of Jesus. It's always God, Paul refers to, until he gets to this verse. And Paul refers to that day, that day of judgment. Verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's the first mention. 
the secrets of men, the Gentiles stand before Jesus, their conscience will have already told them whether their you know, deeds were good or evil. And the Jews will also know, as they stand before Jesus, how they have or have not kept the law. But an important point here is that on that day, their deeds will never justify them. And another thing to think about is that up till now, Paul didn't start by saying, you're wicked and you need a savior. You're a sinner and you need a savior. He says to them, you're a sinner and you're going to meet a judge. So here's another uh, you know, apostolic preacher. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 10, 42 and, four, and, and 43. When he was preaching, he summed up to his hearers two things that Christ gave them after the resurrection. For 40 days after Jesus had resurrected, he taught them what to say. And here are two of the things. He commanded us, this is Peter in Acts saying this, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And here's the second thing he taught them. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So those were the two things that Jesus parted, you know, what he'd been teaching them. So now back to Paul. He's presenting the order of preaching that the apostles did. And there's a coming, he, he says there's a, a day of judgment coming. And you know, I was thinking about this as I read and studied. Often we give testimony to our friends that they need Jesus because of the difference he can make. And it's true, he can make a difference in their life. And we talk about how he's blessed us with forgiveness from our sin, and that's true. But the real issue is that he can make a difference in their existence after death, their eternal destiny. And you know, we often talk about being separated from God. That's the way we put it. <laughs> but you know, it's much worse than that because it's not just being separated from God. It's to experience the fullness of his wrath eternally. Um, if we don't tell them about God's future wrath, they're not going to see their need of a savior. And how often have we heard people joking about going to hell, I'll be there with my friends and we'll have a good time. And they joke, they don't realize it. But you know, it's going to be far worse for them than they can ever imagine. Um, there is a judge and Paul says we're going to all meet him. And often we even hear evangelists giving the offer to people to come to Jesus, to meet Jesus. And they turn away. They're self-confident. They're happy in their life. They're self-sufficient. They don't need him. They have what they need. They don't need to meet him. But Paul and the apostles would tell all those in those early days within their hearing that they indeed would meet him. They'd meet him as savior or they'd meet him as judge. I remember in my early days, I was saved in a very conservative Baptist church. And we had one pastor and he would pound that pulpit and he'd say, are you going to need him as your savior or as your judge? And he'd pound the pulpit really hard. And it was like, whoa. But he was trying to get people, you know, he was giving a wake-up call. Come on, you know. Well, in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And I wonder if we look at our unsaved friends. I know I don't look at them that way. You know, I just want to... Tell them all how good Jesus has been to me and, and how he's blessed me. 
but I don't see them as heading toward hell. I don't see it as, as often as I should or as much or as deeply. Well, the incredible thing about God's grace, and this, I found myself in tears this week, because the in incredible thing about God's grace is that the one whom God has ordained to be the judge on the last day sent him beforehand to get us ready so that we wouldn't have to face that judgment. And I just thought, oh Lord, you're so good. <sighs> what condescension and grace. So I turned on the computer, and maybe those of you who saw my website yesterday, or my Facebook site, I should say, I put on this little old choir from Toronto that were singing down from his glory, ever living story. And the words are so beautiful. You get to that one verse that says, what condescension bringing us redemption, that in the dead of night, not one faint hope in sight, God, gracious tender, laid aside his splendor, stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. Do we realize what he did? Here we were, had, didn't have a hope, didn't have a hope, and yet he made himself known to us and, and, and brought us to himself. Couldn't even do that ourselves. Had to have a spirit convicting us. Well, before we move on to the rest, I hope you're enjoying all the information in the study guide, all the sidebars with the Bible references, and all those portions for further study. You know, we've sold every book except one. We ordered 75. And those men said, a couple of them said to me, we are enjoying that book so much, we're just so glad. So for them, it's a new thing for them to actually have a study guide and be doing it. So I'm really thrilled about it. Well, on the top, page uh, for further thoughts and discussions, there are a lot of things that we can read. For example, on the top of page 46, by what standard will God judge people who claim to have faith in Christ? There are some Bible verses and references that you can look up. So we're without excuse as to how our lives should play out or how we should live. It's, it's a valuable little book. Well, we're going to move on now to the indictment against the Jews. And if you turn to page 47, question 7. There are different answers here, not just one answer. Can some of you tell me why did some Jews think God considered themselves superior to the Gentiles? What was one thing they had that they could boast in? Mm -hmm. They had the law, and I heard circumcision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, they had a lot of things they could boast on. And in verse 17, Paul is talking again to this imaginary person. You call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. And that word boast comes from the same Greek word which is translated as rejoice. It has the root idea of boasting or glorying in something, either good or bad. And boy, they had plenty to brag about, didn't they? God had established a relationship with their ancestors, which they would insist put them in a category entirely separate from the Gentiles. Now true, God had promised Abraham that through his family, the effects of the fall would be reversed. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They were given a unique privilege as being God's chosen people. They were given the outward sign of circumcision a sign of the covenant or agreement that God had made with Abraham, that God would be the God of his descendants forever. But God made it clear that the outward sign was not enough. He referred to circumcision 
of the heart. And if you look at page 49, in your own words, uh, question 10. What is circumcision of the heart according to Romans 2, 25 to 29? Anybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah, cut off from worldly living. All right. Following um, the Holy Spirit to uh, commit to obey the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it means a complete commitment to love, serve, and obey the Lord. Now there's a fuller description on page 48 of your study guide. I'm sure some of you have looked at it. So it's a complete commitment to serve and love and obey the Lord. And in verse... 18, Paul refers to the law they boasted having. They had the law on Mount Sinai, the law which told them how to live as God's rescued people. If they were to remain in this treasured possession among the nations set apart for his, his, his purposes, they were to obey the law. And sometime if you have a chance to read Psalm 119, it just shows you the significance of the law in their lives. So last week, Jackie referred to how God judged Israel at different times. And there's a psalm written by Asaph. It's Psalm 81. Listen as God speaks through the psalmist. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I'll fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. They would not listen to his voice. It was the law that they could listen to. And I wonder if we open our spiritual mouths, so to speak, as to what he would say to us. Spurgeon draws a wonderful application. He says it's like a baby bird in a nest. And when the mother or father draws near with food, their little beaks open to take in all the mother has. I thought it was a good um, description of how we should be. Are we like that with God's word? Do we take advantage of all that's available? in his word, to learn more and more, like we're doing right now, taking advantage as we read and get into Romans. Do we hear what he has to say often as he calls those to preach to us? Do we listen? Do we take advantage of every time his word is being taught? Paul is outlining the privilege they had. They had the law to instruct them, and they'd been called to be a light to the Gentiles. But then in 21, verse 21, can you hear his tone? You then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? What about adultery? Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Then he turns the tables on them. They do not live up to their knowledge. Verse 13 tells us what they'd already been, you know, they'd heard the law. Paul is striking home. They do not obey the law they're supposed to teach. They do not practice what they preach. And then he brings this indictment in verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ezekiel described this so well. Ezekiel 36 and 16. Listen as I read. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. 
Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? And so we see what had happened. They brought it on themselves. God's name had been mocked because his people, Israel, had been defeated and enslaved. So far from being a light to the Gentiles, they, as a result of the rebellion, had caused the Gentiles to blaspheme God's name. So the following verses, 26 to the end, are very clear. To break the law means you're not a true Jew. The Jews are guilty in spite of having circumcision and the law. A Jew would appeal to his circumcision as being a sign of his membership of God's people. But Paul says circumcision was always coupled with an obligation to obey God. Circumcision was no substitute for obedience. It represented a commitment to obedience. So Israel's rebellion makes the membership badge invalid. Even more shocking, Paul says not only will a law-keeping Gentile be seen as a true Jew, but he'll judge the uncircumcised Jewish lawbreaker. Now we'll see more of that in chapter 4 and, and chapter 9. But he continues his argument, circumcision was never meant to be purely physical. Uh, it was merely a, a fit, physical circumcision might receive the praise of man, but that's false. A true Jew is characteristically one inward. It's circumcision of the heart, and we read that back in De Deuteronomy 10. And so it's a matter of the heart by the spirit. There's a, a wonderful description of this inside-out change, if you get time to read it, in Ezekiel 36. Uh, this all must have been very shocking to the Jews to be told that circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision and that uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision, so that these Gentiles who obeyed God would be thought of as more of an authentic Jew. Well, he states a man is not a Jew if he only is one outwardly, but he's a Jew if he's one inwardly. And in his redefinition, he states being a true Jew is not something outward and visible, but inward. And so the same applies to us. Um, if you think of our baptism, for instance, uh, it's a visible sign of our transformation, of our commitment to the Lord, that we've been washed from our sins and that we have the Holy Spirit within. The baptism is not what saves us, but is our telling the world what has happened to us. And we'll talk about baptism later on in a few more chapters. We're telling people that we're no longer under the wrath of God, but that he has made a way for us. So we need more and more to thank God for that gift of grace and mercy that he's bestowed on us who believe. We're going to see in the weeks ahead, Paul is talking to the whole world. Sarah will bring the next lesson next week, and that uh, chapter 9, all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. But then she gets to tell you the good news. So we'll leave it for now. It's time to go. Let's just pray, and then those who brought the goodies are supposed to clean up, but I think... Um, Amy had to go home because the boys were sick, so if someone you could, of you could go in the, in the kitchen and, and help Debbie, that would be great. So let's just pray as we close. Father, this truly is hard words, hard words for Jew and Gentile alike to hear. But Lord, we need to hear this. 
we need to hear what you require of us. And we're just so thankful for your good news. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll learn about that in the weeks to come. We just thank you for making a way. Thank you for the homes represented here. Bless us as we go to our homes this week. May we be a light to the world. Thank you, Father, for all your grace in our life. Amen.